Hi everyone, welcome to Upfront with the Archbishop. Our goal at Upfront is to bridge the gap between the hierarchy and the faithful by discussing the beauty, truth, and challenges of our Catholic faith. My name is Jenny Conley, your host, and I'm here with Archbishop Richard Smith. Hi, Bishop. How are you? I'm fine, Jenny. How are you? I'm doing really good. I'm excited. This is our first full-length episode that we're recording, so I'm I'm excited to get into today's conversation. Looking forward to it myself. Yeah. Well, we might as well just get straight into it. Today's theme is talking about the authority of the bishop. And our, our title for this episode is, When Should a Bishop Speak and When Do We as the Faithful Need to Listen? And I wanted to start a little bit perhaps with some of your background, some of your story. And in your 20s and 30s, when you were growing up as a Catholic, um, what was your relationship with your local bishop and his authority in your life as a Catholic? Do you remember any key decisions that a local bishop made that you noticed um, and had an impact on you when you were in those formative years of young adulthood? Well, I'd have to say... Probably the bishop, the local bishop, was was rather remote. Um, I expect that probably had more to do with my lack of attention to the bishop's presence and what he does than anything else. Because the I grew up in Halifax. It was Archbishop Jim Hayes who was our ordinary at the time, the bishop of the Archdiocese of Halifax, and yeah. and he made great efforts to get around to be in pres- to be in parishes and so on. So I think you know when I was a teenager, I probably wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to that. Yeah. I would have I would have met the Archbishop when he confirmed me, for example. I got to know him a little bit more when I was involved in student chaplaincy at Samaritan University in Halifax when I was a student there. Yeah. Um, but obviously things turned around when I uh, discerned that I was being called to the priesthood and wanted to test that out through seminary. And You don't get admitted to seminary unless the Archbishop says yes. And so that's when <laughs> I started to actually put my life under his direction because entrance to seminary, the decision as to whether or not I would be ordained a priest, that all rests ultimately with the archbishop. He's got a whole process of consultation around that, obviously, and listens to a seminary formation team. But the buck stops with, with him. And so yeah. <laughs> from that time, he, his, his, uh, what he had to say was very determinative for my life. Yeah, no kidding. I know, I mean, I grew up as a cradle Catholic, and I know sometimes when you've grown up in the Catholic Church, um, sometimes we take for granted uh, the relationship between seminarians and, and priests, uh, or discerning priests, and their, their relationship with the bishop. And I know, at least in, in my experience as a young adulthood, as, as a millennial, there's certainly within my generation, there's a lot of tension um, with a sense of authority, uh, a questioning of authority in general. And I'm curious, like when you were beginning to discern priesthood and uh, were growing in that a closer relationship with your diocesan bishop, was there ever a moment where you felt tension with his authority, where you were like, okay, like I need to submit to this, this man. This is a part of my calling potentially as a priest. Or was it something that you were readily excited to accept and, and grateful for that sense of structure and authority? I would say it was the latter. Because okay. one of the things that uh, I realized early on is that key to discernment mm-hmm. 
to discernment of how one is going to be living one's life within the church, especially something like uh, priesthood, key to that is obedience to legitimate authority. Mm-hmm. Because we, in, in our culture today, we sort of look to the self as the ultimate authority, as the ultimate moral compass. Mm-hmm. And so any voice other than our own, or anything that exists outside the sphere of our own minds, really isn't something that we need to pay a whole lot of attention to. I am my own ultimate authority. But within the life of Christianity, we recognize that it's the opposite. It's, it's the Lord Jesus who's the sovereign. It's he who determines uh, our lives and the direction that they ought to take if, if we are to follow him to eternal life. How to discern that voice of the Lord? Well, he speaks through his church in, in the word of God, in the church's tradition and so on. But when it comes to these specific acts of discernment, the role of legitimate authority is critical. So I made that determination early on that at the end of the day, I simply cannot trust myself alone. I have to put everything out on the table before the authorities of the church, let them take a good look at my life and make the recommendation to the bishop and then follow what he determines in with respect to that particular discernment. Okay. I find that really interesting, that idea of legitimate authority, Mm -hmm. because I think there's a lot of us who are in a position, and I've certainly wrestled with this uh, myself as a young Catholic growing up in the church, is what exactly is legitimate authority? Because I agree, I mean, there's certainly like a sense of relief uh, relief and grace in in entrusting in a legitimate authority, especially one that we believe is ordained by Christ himself, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Do you do you remember having a clear articulation of what makes an illegitimate authority in your life uh, when you were discerning priesthood? Well, it's something I think we learn, you know, as we study the faith, as we study the history of the faith and the dynamics of the Christian life and so on. Our ultimate authority is the Lord, and we owe our ultimate obedience to the revelation that has come to the world from the Father through Jesus. But how is that revelation, how is the content of that revelation made known to us. Right. Well, in the Catholic tradition, there's there's three dimensions to that. There's yeah. sacred scripture, there is tradition by which the word of God is handed on down through the ages, and then there's the magisterium of the church, so the communion of bishops together with the Pope, who at any particular point in history are the authoritative interpreters of that tradition as it has been handed on to us. Mm-hmm. If you look at the first Eucharistic prayer, sometimes what we call the Roman canon in the Mass, it speaks to it speaks of the role of the bishops as those who holding to the truth hand on the Catholic faith. So at any particular point in our lives, as we are seeking to be faithful to the Lord, as we seek to live within his word and the authority that we acknowledge, the question of interpretation, the question of knowing how properly and correctly to understand and follow that word requires an authority which becomes is made legitimate in virtue of how the person is chosen, how the person enters into what we call the apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. So we have the first college of apostles. They were the ones who received revelation from Christ, who began the process of handing it on, who in any of the, any of the local churches were that ultimate voice of ultimate point of reference, I like to refer to it as, whereby people could have confidence that they were following the, the Lord's word. And that that has been handed on through the church uh, by what we call apostolic succession. So 
by ordination, prayer, and the laying on of hands, those that are called to be bishops succeed to the role of the apostle and exercise that apostolic ministry. Mm-hmm. It's something that we always have to exercise in communion with other bishops. You know, a lone ranger bishop is an oxymoron. Yeah. And we have to exercise it in such a way that we, we realize that we ourselves are always under the authority of the word of God. Right. But to have that particular apostolic ministry within the church gives that assurance that by you know I'm not just by relying upon my own thinking and my own interpretation possibly going off the wrong tra- on onto the wrong track there is a means given to us by Christ himself whereby we can have that assurance and that's what we mean by a legitimate authority that which has been uh, rooted first of all in the institution of the church the way Christ set things up and then and having followed that process of Apostolic succession. Yeah. No, I appreciate that clarification about what it means uh, as a legitimate authority. Because you're right, you said earlier how certainly there's a sense uh, within secular culture and even within certain strains of the church, there's we've we've maybe fallen into this era error of believing that we ourselves are the ultimate authority. We are a hundred percent self-determined and that there is no authority of God. And the idea of having authority over us is is, is appalling sometimes culturally, but it's actually such a grace um, within the structure of, of the church and and how that authority is permeated by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Such such a grace. Um, and it, it seems that that was your experience of that when you were you were entering seminary and working with your bishop to discern that, that you had that a, a really positive sense of what a grace authority can be. Well, it gives it gives a gives a freedom, it gives a depth of assurance that right. okay, this ha- what I what I have been experiencing within myself, has been tested, right? So in Scripture, we're, we're told always discern the spirits. You know, whatever, whatever you're feeling within yourself, bring that to the church, bring that to the body of Christ. Have it tested, tested in a way that um, it is brought before, as we said, legitimate authority. And what I found in my own life is that just gave, gave a, a freedom, a depth of assurance that, yeah, I'm I'm on the right track. This is what the Lord is calling me to do. And and that, that, that gives us a sense of liberation and freedom to follow where the Lord is leading. Right. Yeah, I like that phrase, depth of assurance. That's that's a really good correlation between why authority is such a such a grace in our lives. Um a little bit more about your own story. You were so you were a diocesan priest and you were ordained as a bishop in two thousand and two. Yes. Correct. Which diocese was that? Diocese of Pembroke in okay. Ontario. Pembroke, Ontario. So that was your first ordination. Is it or, is it ordination as bishop? Is yes, that the right ordi- term? Ordination. Okay. So in 2002, you were ordained for the first time as a bishop. What was one of the most significant impressions that you got about what it was like to get bestowed with the authority of a bishop? Because that must have been a big moment. I mean, you're going from being a diocesan priest and now you now you're a bishop and that comes with such a weight of responsibility and authority do you remember how you perceived receiving that authority that's a great question you know, I, I, well I, I think it all began you know with a sense of you know wonder how could, how, yeah. how could this be you know, yeah. did, did you, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the one who's chosen to be a bishop finds oh you get a call from the apostolic nuncio so the yeah. pope's ambassador right in a particular country and the pope has named you to such and such and your first in- <laughs> first reaction is are you sure you got the right number you know this <laughs> yeah, you, you, it's got to be somebody else anyway when that reality starts to sink in again you it, it's that depth of assurance right so this is right. not something you'd look for not something you'd want something that you, 
you tend to, I'd have to say, probably run away from. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the call had come from the Holy Father. At that time, it was Pope John Paul II, which in itself follows a whole process of consultation. So, well, okay, I'll trust this. It's coming from, again, legitimate authority. But I remember one um, bishop that I was talking to around that time of my ordination, he said, look, your life's never going to be the same. Mm. And he was right. And I, I, to go back to your question, I think that first sense of something different was uh, in my relationship with priests. Mm. That was a shift. Um, they had been my friends, yeah. my buddies, right? Uh, and certainly the priests that I had grown up with in uh, the Halifax Diocese have remained soul because yeah. I'm not their bishop. But um, when you are a bishop in relationship to your own priests, certainly you can and you must be friendly. There is a, there is a sense of fraternity. Absolutely, there's a shared communion in the in the priestly ordination. Friendly is one thing; friend is another. Mm-hmm. And you know, a bishop always has to be conscious of the fact that vis-a-vis any particular priest, I may need to make some decisions which would be painful for that priest, which could be difficult, could be challenging, and painful for myself, obviously, at the same time. So we need to be a little bit careful that the the relationship remains professional and friendly, but there's a certain um, line there that really ought not to be crossed. And that that brings its own difficulty along with it, for sure. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the first thing that, Hit me rather Hard. deeply and strongly, yeah. Right. And when this all started to take, all started to unfold. Yeah. So, were you a bishop? Were you immediately um, receiving authority over priests that you had previously been close friends with, or you, you no, changed I didn't. Diocese? I changed dioceses, okay. and, th- and that that I would say was a grace. Okay. Know? Um, it's a bit of a challenge when you don't really know the lay of the land, you don't know the history of the diocese, you don't know the people. But at the same time, you're going in uh, with a clean slate Mm -hmm. and you get to know people and everybody vis-a-vis the new bishop is on a level playing field, right? I I would think it would be very difficult to become a bishop of your home diocese. Oh my, yeah. Where you know your priests have been your friends, right? And the relationship would change. Now that that does happen by times, right? And it can be managed, obviously. But I I would find that awkward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no kidding. How do you... When you were growing in this sense of authority and kind of growing into your role as bishop, do you remember feeling any kind of tension between, all right, I do have authority, but this is coming from the Holy Spirit and I have a responsibility to to be really discerning in my decisions because it's not just, it's not Mm. like you were elected Mm. by popular vote or something. Your authority is coming from God, not from... uh, it's you know, you're just you're not an elected politician, so it's kind of an authority that's not your own that mm. you're that you're using. Do you remember feeling like, okay, I got to make decisions, and I'm sure that you were putting you've been in many, uh, I'm sure you've been in many uh, situations where you've had to make unpopular decisions or decisions that you knew wouldn't be immediately applauded, and everyone's giving you a pat on the back. So when you're making when you're in that position of making difficult decisions, especially. How do you how do you um, engage with that tension of okay authority of the Holy Spirit but also authority as me myself Richard Smith? I think it's important to 
you know, I've certainly found it important to remember that, yes, if as a bishop, like any bishop, you have an authority to be exercised, but the way you exercise it is critical. So right. um, I may be endowed with a particular authority in virtue of ordination, but in exercising it, I cannot be authoritative. In other words, I have said this, therefore. Okay. Because what we have, uh, yes, the Holy Spirit certainly works through the apostolic ministry, we know that, but the Holy Spirit works within and among all believers in virtue of their baptism. And on that basis, we say that we all together within the church have a co-responsibility, ordained, lay faithful alike, to further the mission of the church, which necessitates on everybody's part, and in a particular way, I would say, on the role of the bishop, um, the need to listen to listen and discern how the Spirit is at work amongst the faithful also. How do I discern where the Spirit is leading the church as I'm listening to what the Spirit is causing to rise up in the hearts and in the minds of the faithful? In fact, we're going through this right now in the church. It's a a key uh, part of the papacy of Pope Francis where he's calling us to rediscover synodality. Right. Uh, yeah. Whereby we sit down and we talk, share our concerns, share our hopes, and in all not not that the church becomes a parliament and by majority vote you decide on things like doctrine or work. No, no, that's not us. Um, but how are we together discerning where the spirit is leading us? Now, in any local church, like in any organization, there's got to be somebody to give a final determination to say this is it. Or this is not it. And so that's that's why we do have this legitimate authority in the church, whereby the bishop says, okay, where a decision needs to be made, where there needs to be some kind of a final determination, he gives it. Yeah. But the bishop doesn't do that in isolation. He ought not to. And in fact, the church provides the bishop with a number of consultative bodies that he really is required you know, to listen to, whether it's the council of priests, whether it's the Archdiocesan uh, pastoral council, gathering of lay people to give advice to the bishop, uh, uh, whether it's the the priest in his parishes listening to his pastoral council and, and then sharing that insight uh, with the bishop. I I also have here in the diocese a, a small group of priests that I'll consult with on particularly sensitive matters that call that the Episcopal Council, those that exercise some kind of representative role for the bishop in the diocese. So I'll talk to them and listen to them. I've got a great staff here at the pastoral center and they're not at all shy about telling me what they think about <laughs> something, which I really, really appreciate. Um, so all of these are ways in which I'm able to listen and hear and discern and exercise my authority in that collective way, giving a definitive statement when I need to yeah. uh, for the good of the unity of the church, uh, but never in isolation. Now there's a term it's uh, it's it's slipping my mind right now, but in terms of the authority of the uh, the consensus of the church or the consensus of the faithful, I don't know if you know what I'm referring to. Um, when when there's a discernment being made in the church and the church, including the faithful, there seems to be maybe a majority consensus or a sense of not just the bishops or different. Uh, organizations within the church speaking, but actually the faithful themselves have that sense of authority. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, there's a there's a couple of phrases associated with that. So first of all, we we will speak sometimes of the sensus fidei, yes, which yes. is the sense of the faith that we would say that in virtue of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us through baptism, believers 
believers who are serious about their faith, who study their faith, who are committed to the Word of God, they, they develop, under the guidance of the Spirit, an instinctive sense, if I can put it that way, of really what is in um, conformity with the faith as handed down through the, from the apostles through the church and what is not. So that's the, the instinct of the faith, if I can put it that way. Okay. There's also the sensus fidelium, which is the sense of the faithful. Now, often that's that's misunderstood and misrepresented as if it were uh, what the lay people might say or hold in contradistinction to what the magisterium might be saying. But that's right. not so. The sense sensus fidelium is the is the sense of the faith as held by all of the faithful, which is from the pope to the baptized. Um, it's 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 that discerning of what. All of the faithful, all of the people of God in all the various roles might want to say about a particular issue. And that's also understood, not just synchronically, you know, what what is the sense of the faithful at this particular time, but also what we would say diachronically, through time. Because the faithful of the church also includes the communion of the saints, those that have gone before us. And the saints are the ultimate among the faithful in that sense, right? So um, what what has been the insights, what has been handed on to us from the communion of saints through those that have been the great doctors of the church, those of, that all comes into the picture so that as a particular issue might be discerned where we want to consult the census fidelium, yeah. um, that, that's a very complicated endeavor, no obviously. Right? And so, that's including the hierarchy, the bishops. Absolutely. It's not just the lay faithful. No. So it's actually integrating uh, the, the voices of the faithful with the bishops and yep. the, the, the And with, with the, um, the witness of the saints who've gone before us also. Right. Okay. Now, I wanted to go back to a point that we briefly touched on um, and just the idea that a bishop is not elected at all, like mm. a like a politician, um, and when you were ordained, that was it was coming from the authority of the church, and you were chosen through the grace of the Holy Spirit as as bishop, and as that's continued through your role as now Archbishop of the Edmonton Diocese, Edmonton Archdiocese. And I know when we were developing this podcast, we kind of talked off the mic about how bishops are often perceived as politicians, hmm. um, and. I think as a consequence of that perception, it's it's common enough for some people to expect the bishop, to expect from the bishop what they expect from a secular and elected uh, official or politician, right? And maybe that's more of a of a unarticulated sense, but it's certainly there. And I, especially when the church is dealing with controversial issues where the church and the state are interacting. Um, there's certainly that tension. And I know that I've certainly had conversations in the past where people express that, well, you know, the bishop, maybe not even specifically yourself, but any bishop, the bishop should have done this because clearly that's what the majority wants, right? Or the bishop should have said this, or he shouldn't have said this, um, which is pretty common within the secular political field, right? But again, as we've said, the bishop is, is not elected by popular vote. That's just not the nature of, of the Catholic structure of, of authority and hierarchy. And so I wonder if you could clarify for us one or two main differences between the authority of the bishop and then the authority of someone like the Alberta premier or a state governor. How is, you both have authority, 
you're both in leadership, you're shepherding people in a sense, but what are two, one or two main differences between you and an elected politician? Well, you know, the first, the first thought occurs to me is in terms of the, the word constituency. So any elected official has a responsibility to those who have elected him or her to office, to their constituency. Right. But what's the constituency of the bishop? You know, to what is the mm-hmm. bishop accountable? Well, obviously, he's accountable to Christ, right. accountable to the word of God, accountable to the church's tradition. And so it's the role of the bishop um, to do and to act and to say whatever he does or says with that as the ultimate point of reference. Um, I'm thinking of uh, one of Paul's letters to Timothy where he's going you know, to speak the truth in season or out season. Outside of season. There, are, there are times when I will say things or make some determinations <laughs> that does not meet with you know, yeah. <laughs> universal applause. Yeah. But that, that, that's, <laughs> that's just part of the job, yeah, right? It's funny because it's true. <laughs> funny because it's true. I just, I just need to keep in mind what is my responsibility in virtue of ordination. And the, the role of the bishop in any particular local church is, is threefold, and that's to teach, to sanctify, and to govern. Teaching involves preaching. It involves catechizing, making sure that people understand this beautiful treasure that we have that, that we call our faith. Um, sanctification has to do with oversight of the sacramental celebrations, the liturgical worship of the church, making sure that that's celebrated worthily and well. Governance is actually in itself threefold. So there's a, a legislative dimension to it, whereby we establish policies for the diocese. There's a judicial dimension to it. So, for example, oversight of the marriage tribunal or making sure that proper canonical processes are followed if, God forbid, there's allegations or, or accusations. And there's also an executive function uh, so responsible for administration of the patrimony of the archdiocese or establishing parishes or suppressing parishes, appointing pastors. And these, but the, I guess the key thing in, the, in this threefold exercise of the bishop's office is that it's all ordered towards preserving the communion of the church. Mm-hmm. Jesus established the church as his body, as a communion in him. And the ordained ministry bishop, priest, deacon, exists at the service of that communion. Mm -hmm. And so whenever there is any kind of a threat to that communion of the church, and there always always have been from day one, ultimately it's the responsibility of the bishop, so to speak and so to act, as to preserve that unity, which might mean naming some things that need to be named, that perhaps are unfolding in in ways that are not good, that are not pleasant, and so on, Um, but naming it and Sometimes in that act, that, that's not particularly popular. Right. But we always have to keep in mind that our ultimate accountability is, is to the Word of God. It's that to which, according to which the bishop himself will be judged when, we, when uh, that moment of judgment comes in his, at the end of his own life. Hi everyone, Matthew Bodnarik here, the producer of Upfront with the Archbishop. Thank you for listening to this conversation, and if you liked it, part two is currently out. You can listen to it right now. Thank you.